come true. We are so excited today. I'm getting to host the seven innings podcast with an amazing group of women. We're going to talk some softball. Courtney Lyle here. You can follow you get your lineup card right now at seven innings podcast, Twitter, Instagram, follow along with us. Um, our cast of characters today, it's a good one. Madison Shipman, Jenny Dalton Hill, Danielle Laurie, Jen Schroeder, and Aaron Miller. This is going to be a lot of fun, ladies. And what we're talking about today, Florida State getting a giant road sweep of Clemson, plus some non-conference clashes. We've had some good ones in the past few weeks. Um, a little pitching love because Danielle's our only pitcher today. So um, we felt like we got to talk pitching a bit. Um, Megan Tron at UCLA, Montana Fouts at Alabama will be in topics of conversation. We'll chat a little Big Ten, shag a few stats. That's my favorite segment. And then we're going to open up the mailbag. So Starting with your lineup card, leading off, no doubt about it. Shout out to Robin Segretti, our producer, for that title. Um, Florida State getting the sweep of Clemson on the road. This is the first time that Florida State has won three straight against a top five opponent in the regular season. It was impressive. Um, Jenny, what do you think the difference was for Florida State over the weekend? You know, in this matchup between Florida State and Clemson, I think it comes down to the body of work that went into the season before these two teams played Clemson, in my opinion, has played a lighter schedule. They did not know what kind of Valerie Cagle was going to come out this season. She had surgery over the summer. They didn't know what her kind of comeback was going to look like. Was she going to come back stronger? Was she going to be able to pitch at all? And that question mark, I think led into the scheduling that John Rittman did the head coach of Clemson. He scheduled light. And the Clemson Tigers needed this stress-filled series to develop. It really comes down to making sure that you can play in pressure-filled moments. We know Florida State, they own the pressure-filled moment. They've won 18 ACC championships. They've hosted eight consecutive regionals. They've been to 22 straight NCAA tournaments. They don't own the best defense in the ACC. Clemson does. They don't own the best on-base percentage or slugging percentage in the ACC. Clemson does. They don't even own the best batting average in the ACC. Clemson does. But Florida knows how to compete under pressure. And to me, that's the difference. Florida State was able to execute in those moments where their defense wasn't clean, but they were given opportunities to score against a Clemson squad, who I think this was the first real test that they had to face in a three-game series. I think it was a necessary loss for Clemson. It exposed weaknesses. It forced communication. It develops resilience. It it helps you figure out how to slow the game down in big pressure moments, and it creates opportunities for leaders to step up. Pressure is a privilege. We talk about it all the time, but uh, if you don't have it throughout the season, you're going to get exposed at the end of the year. And so I actually really appreciate this series between Clemson and Florida State, knowing that Clemson now knows what to do as they go back to the drawing board to be able to be a big postseason team. Yeah, when you talk about Clemson, you obviously have to talk about Valerie Cagle, and she had only given up 11 total runs before that series, gave up seven to Florida State in game one, 10 for the series. Um, but shifting to Florida State's pitching staff, I heard an interview with Catherine Sandercock talking about they're embracing this pitch by committee. Everybody's embracing their role. So what do you think about how this pitching staff is run, obviously, by someone who's so good at working with pitchers and Lonnie Alameda? 
Well, and Catherine Zandercock, more than anything, she is kind of taking this pitching staff of seven pitchers under her wing, and she's figuring out how to lead a group and also leave a legacy. We know this is her last season in the circle for Florida State. And so for her, she's trying to come in and show these young pitchers what it means to be a Seminole pitcher. She throws in almost every game. She doesn't have a lot of complete games on the season. However, she does step in and fill in the gaps for a young pitching staff who is figuring out how to navigate those big moments. Yeah, and looking at some of Sandra Cox's numbers, obviously she got the ACC Co-Pitcher of the Week after this weekend, picked up a win and two saves in that series, went 11 and third innings. She's won her last six decisions. So I was listening to the podcast last week, Jenny, and you were talking about the Florida State offense, and you were wanting to learn how are they going to manufacture runs because it seems to develop as the season goes on for the Seminoles. So what have you learned about that aspect of Florida State's game? Well, if anybody watched this series, they know that aggressive base running is definitely part of their MO. Josie Muffley stealing home. Are you kidding me? I mean, it was a miscue by the catcher for Clemson. She walked away from the plate and opened up an opportunity for Florida State to grab that 3-2 lead. And then they hang on for the win. So when it comes to Florida State and their offense, can they hit the long ball? Yeah, they have the potential in their lineup, but Florida State is all about the manufacturing piece. They love to hit doubles. They love to extend with stolen bases and really take advantage of defensive miscues. And that was the difference in this series, being able to take advantage of some Clemson miscues. They had three errors in the first game. And actually, when you look at the series, Florida State had more errors in the series than Clemson did. All of Clemson's errors came in game one, and Florida State committed one error in game one and three in game three, but they were able to come away the victor because of some tricky base running. So a big sweep for Florida State last weekend. want to point out, though, Clemson, great learning opportunity, and last night, Tuesday night, um, Valerie Cagle, a three-run home run in the top of the seventh to beat their rival, South Carolina, in state. So um, that was a good win and a good bounce back for this Clemson program. All right, we're moving on to the number two spot, Bachelorette Bash in Norman. I really feel like Aaron Miller missed an opportunity a couple of years ago. Um, Didn't see your bachelorette party at an Oklahoma softball (laughs) game, but... Nevertheless, Oklahoma, the number one team in the nation on a 29-game winning streak. They're 14-0 against ranked opponents um, after the win over LSU on Tuesday night. Jordy Ball was fantastic. Um, Aaron, what are you seeing from Oklahoma right now besides an awesome place to have a bachelorette party? Are we peaking as a sport? I feel like when you see bachelorettes celebrating this moment at the ballpark, that's that's pretty peak. Also, I remember OU Texas, the signs of a young girl giving up Swifty tickets to come to that game. That's, I think we're peaking as a sport. Um, anyway, I, I had a chance to call those games on E plus and Oklahoma obviously continues to dominate and, you know, a 16 and 0 weekend from, from a run scored perspective, but they left 17 on base. So although they were good, there was still a lot of missed opportunities. This squad struggled with off speed, I know Danielle is going to get into the pitching strategy from Texas Tech, but on paper, it looks good. But calling that game, I still saw a lot of missed opportunities. There was a lot of moments where that team should have just blown 
Texas Tech out of the water and they weren't able to really put the, the pedal to the metal. So I still think there's room for growth, especially late in the season. It's a matter of finishing when you know you can finish. So although they're still good, I still think there's room for growth. Yeah, I I mean, taking a look at Texas Tech, first off, wicked hard road right now in the Big 12. I mean, they're two and seven. They drop three to Texas and then they go to OU and they drop three. I like Snyder's approach with throwing six arms. Game one was the most successful and he threw all his pitchers. Um, and they only gave up three hits. So that was great game one. You're, you're going to lose to OU. Like you're trying to snipe a team. That's the mentality going in, in my opinion. You're not going to go beat two, OU two out of three. So it's about learning, giving your pitchers that good experience and hoping when the moment is right that you can try to take down the big dog. Um, game two for Texas Tech hurt them a little bit. I mean, obviously Jada Coleman went off, had a good performance, two for four with three ribbies. But how good she is in the leadoff spot makes it tough. I mean, she leads the team in homers, 11 home runs tied with T.R.A. Jennings. Like, she's just so good. But you can't walk six hitters, right? When you give up those free passes to a team like OU, they're going to capitalize. But I also think at times when you go up against teams like that as a pitcher, I'm not saying this is how I would have approached them. But you know that you can, like, feel how tense it is or try to be perfect when you're going up against a team that is that good. And if you're going in with the mentality of like, oh, I need to be perfect. I have to hit this spot. I cannot miss. It's almost the reverse psychology of like, oh, damn, like something bad's going to happen. You have to go in with that fearless mentality of like, what's going to be will be. And unfortunately, you know, they got swept in game three was the worst of it, losing seven to nothing. Um but OU is a team to beat. I mean, it's it's common sense. We know that they're, they're supposed to win a national championship again based on talent, based on who they've returned. Um, so every team that's going to play them is going to bring their best self. But more importantly, everyone's always going to try something different because people want to figure out what it is to be able to beat a team like that. Leaving all those runners on base, I mean, that's concerning, but they're still beating teams. So at the end of the day, Texas Tech has a little bit of a, a hard road. They're going up against Baylor, who beat ULL yesterday, uh, Dariana Orme. I mean, she's killing it, and she's someone that I actually wanted to talk about down in the lineup card and not like a Wichita State or ULL. Like, I think Baylor could be a snipe team that can do some damage this year. So they're going in to play Baylor, and then they have Kansas and Oklahoma State. So, honestly, Texas Tech, I think, has a tough couple weeks ahead of them. For me, I think just looking at that Texas Tech series too, in game two, I remember specifically Oklahoma had 12 flyouts. So there was a lot of unproductive at bats and it all came off off speed. I, your girl, Kinsey Hanson, Jen, she had a couple ugly strikeouts on some changeups. And that to me, from a scouting perspective, I'm zoning in on that. I'm looking at how this team handles off speed pitching And to Danielle's point, I'm throwing the kitchen sink at them. I'm figuring out anything I can throw at this offense to see if I can get them off balance. Because there there are some holes. There are some weaknesses. It's just about exposing it. I'm just going to jump in for one second here. Don't you think if you're any other team who has Oklahoma on your schedule, you are looking at that A&M series and you are thinking about things like that, Erin. Like you are just zoning in so you have the best chance to beat them. Like if I'm an opposing coach, I'm watching so much film. I'm watching everything and trying to dissect not who they necessarily are as a team, but who those individual weaknesses are in the lineup. 
All right. So Oklahoma is going to step out of non-conference a little bit. They've got Oakland, Louisville, and Miami, Ohio. Those games will be played at Miami, Ohio this weekend, but they got a big win Tuesday night over an, a ranked LSU team. Jordy Ball had those 13 strikeouts. So we'll keep an eye if anybody can, uh, you know, take down the Sooners. Moving to number three in your lineup card, it is non-conference clashes. Um, last week, we saw Tennessee, the number six team in the nation. They lost back-to-back to Baylor, who we've already heard Danielle say could, you know, is a team to watch. That's the first back-to-back losses of the season for Tennessee. But then Tuesday night, they exploded against Virginia Tech. Could it be because Danielle bought an orange hoodie yesterday? We don't know. Only time will tell, but an 11 to nothing run rule victory. Um, Madison, Lady Vols, how are they looking right now? Well, first of all, I think I need that orange hoodie that Danielle has. I'm going to need another one of those so I can sport the orange. Um, but, you know, I, I thought that the the Tennessee offense didn't make some of the adjustments last weekend against Baylor like we saw them make earlier in the year. But all the credit to Baylor. I think that they are playing so well right now. Mackenzie Wilson at the top of their order, I think, is a catalyst for the rest of the lineup. I know we've talked about Shaylin Govan and the big hit that she had against Oklahoma earlier in the year. But the first pitch that she saw against Ashley Rogers this past weekend, she smokes it for a double. And I think that sets the tone for the rest of the team. Like, hey, we're going to come in here and we're going to do some damage. Uh, on the flip side, I was really impressed with the way that Tennessee bounced back against Virginia Tech. And we know that Emma Lemley for Virginia Tech has been very good. She has been susceptible to the home run ball this year, but Zeta Pooney in the middle of that Tennessee order stepped up a four for four day. McKenna Gibson had a home run. I think that that, those were the types of swings that we gotten accustomed to seeing from Tennessee throughout the rest of the year. And that's the normal ebbs and flows of softball and throughout the season. It's the dog days of of the year where you're the newness of seasons a little bit too far away. The postseason still a little bit further away too. You're just right there in the middle. So no concerns uh, on my front from Tennessee. But I know that there were so many other non-conference matchups. Jen, who did you have your eye on? You know, I I still want to talk a little bit about OU. And I know I I get a lot of heat for my criticism of OU. But what I love about them is it doesn't matter who they're playing. If you go on their social media feed and you look at any of the videos that are posted, they could be in a midweek game that truly doesn't matter, or they could be playing uh, UCLA in Palm Springs and their clips of excitement look exactly the same. And Madison, I love that you brought up where we are in this season. Cause when I was preparing for this podcast, that was one thing I was really thinking about. We can all remember the excitement of the beginning of season. We can all remember the lead up of selection Sunday and competing for a national championship. But it's the grind in the middle right now of finals, of midterms, of all of the kind of boringness that starts to settle in. And Oklahoma, where they stand out to me is that they literally compete like they're competing for a national championship every single day in their emotion. And I know we're talking about these, you know, off these uh, non-conference clashes. But I think that's what really stands out about Oklahoma. Um, and then we, we've got to talk more about Baylor. And Danielle, if you want to jump in here, do it. Uh, they lose Aaliyah Binford to a knee injury. She's not just their best pitcher. She's one of their top hitters. They lose her in February after coming off this huge win against OU. But the way that the rest of the team has been able to step up has really stood out to me, both Maddie and Danny, if you guys want to pop in. Now, in two weeks, they go and face OU, though, in a three-game series. And so, for me, I'm looking forward to Baylor facing OU again in a three-game series. What do you guys got on that? Well, 
I mean, they already got him once. So I look at what the series is going to be in the next couple of weeks and think like, if you drop a couple, it's okay. Would you want to snipe one again? I think you, you pick your wins when you can get them. But I also think at times when you go up against OU, it's like, do you want to give them your best stuff? all the time. It's like, I want to try to like save something. I don't, I don't throw for me. I don't. And if I do, I keep a short leash because at the end of the day, she's probably your best chance um, to be successful. And she's been a rock star this whole year. She sniped some great teams, but I, I pick my poison when it comes to some of these matchups where it's like, Hey, at the end of the day, like we want to win games, but we want to prepare our athletes mentally for when that postseason comes to feel like they are invincible and can go up against those teams. I don't want to throw Orme out there and then just crush her before the postseason or, or the conference tournament where she feels like, dang, I just gave up 14 to OU. Now I'm not good anymore, if that makes sense. So it's going to be an interesting matchup for sure. But I also think that I don't go with with everything I have right out of the gate against them. Jen, I go back to even what Caleb Rhodes said last week on the podcast that you Baylor will have to show up entirely different because you can't beat Oklahoma in the same way twice. Damn sure not three more times. So what can Baylor bring in the circle and offensively that OU will get caught on their heels with? And they've got to do that three more shots, three more times at home in Waco. So that's a series I'm really looking forward to. I think that Oklahoma has a chip on the shoulder and is coming in there with some red eyes wanting to prove a point. Um, So I think it'll I think it'll be an interesting matchup for sure. And at the same time, I feel like Baylor has a chip on their shoulder this entire year. They are playing feisty softball. I feel like they feel like they're not as respected as they should be. And they have got huge, huge wins. Um, them and Louisiana. I know I got a little off course and we just went on this OU Baylor route, but Louisiana is another team I'm sure we're going to talk to down in the lineup card. We're going to talk more about them um, and what they could maybe do as a non-Power 5 team leading up to the postseason. Jen is so excited. She's already moved us on to number four. Uh, but just so if you did want to circle your calendar, ladies, for the Oklahoma Baylor rematch, April 21st, 22nd, and 23rd, um, you can put a big star on your calendar. But uh, as Jen Schro gracefully moved us on to number four on the lineup spot, mid-major magic. This is for everybody, but I am starting with the great Jenny Dalton Hill. Um, looking at the mid-major teams. Keeping in mind the current RPI as of today, Wednesday, April 12th, Louisiana's number 10, Central Arkansas number 17 after their win last night over Arkansas, Wichita State at 24. You have to be a top 16 um, seed in order to host regional. So, Jenny, which do you think has the the mid-major has the best chance to host a regional? And we'll go around the room. Like, I can't lie. I actually went down the rabbit hole of Baylor. And then I realized, you know, after 45 minutes that they're a power five school. And I'm like, oh, so then I had to refocus because Baylor is off my radar. It was the big win against Oklahoma that kind of put them on my radar. And so then I went down the rabbit hole and was like, oh, this is a great one. And then I realized, oh, dang it. So when I refocused, got myself back in line, I really like Wichita State. They're sitting at um, 23 in the rankings, and they've got an RPI of 24. They beat Oak Arkansas 10-2. They beat Oklahoma State 8-7. They still have Oklahoma State April 18th, and they will face Oklahoma on April 25th. So I really like that they are continuing to push the envelope down the stretch. You see a lot of teams when they enter conference play that don't really put a ton of tough 
matchups in their schedule as they try to win their conference. But Wichita State is really pushing forward. They've got a 34 and seven record on the season. They did lose to Missouri State back on March 11th. And then they run ruled them. So I like the way that they lost and then rebounded right back to it. Um, but the bit, the loss that maybe hurts them the most is the run rule by Boise State back on February 17th. But you're hoping that the committee looks at that loss came so far long, so long ago that these wins later in the season kind of come back and give them the momentum to push their way up into a hosting opportunity. But with a ranking of 23, I think they still sit a little too high out of the opportunity to host at home. Um, Jen, what do you think? You know, I'm really hot on Louisiana and I didn't realize it until I started to research for this podcast. They're 10 in the RPI. And when I looked at their complete body of work, yes, they have losses that they shouldn't have on their, on their schedule. No doubt about it. But what stood out to me are their one run losses to top opponents. They have a one run loss to UCLA, a one run loss to Arkansas, a one run loss to Baylor. So they're in these games. And so we think about just progressing through season. Obviously, we know they're well coached. They're going to be prepared. There's no doubt about it. Tonight is a big test for them. They play AM tonight. And so for me, I've got that circled on my calendar. I'm excited to follow that game. And then I just got to give a shout out to UCA Central Arkansas, who beats Arkansas last night. An incredible game. But for me, it was the shutout. They shut out a potent offense of Arkansas. It was only Arkansas's fourth ever time being shut out this year. So that really stood out to me, Maddie. What do you have? Yeah, I agree with all you guys. I think Louisiana was the team that I circled that I think has the best outside shot to possibly host a regional. Now, to your point, Jen, they do have some of those losses in there. They've lost some games that they shouldn't have. But I do think that Coach Jerry Glasgow's done a really good job of stacking up his schedule outside of their conference schedule. And I think for a lot of these mid-major teams, that's a point of emphasis is to go out and play the Oklahomas, the Oklahoma States of the world to boost up that RPI. Uh, They have played, uh, when I'm just looking through the schedule, I think 12 of the teams on their schedule are top 25 teams, and that's a good chunk of your games. Uh, The concern I have for Wichita State is when I'm looking through their schedule, only five of those games are going to be against top 25 opponents. But I do think that Wichita State is one of those teams that I would not want to see come to my regional. That's for sure. I mean, between Addison Barnard and Sydney McKinney, we know what she's doing. Uh, That is a team that I would not want coming to my house in the postseason. Well, and to that point, Madison, it was Jerry Glasgow who watched what Cindy Ball Malone did last year at UCF and got herself a hosting opportunity. And so he decided last year that that's the way he wanted to schedule as well. So he went out and scheduled a much tougher non-conference schedule to try to boost his chances to host in the postseason. I don't know that it's going to work, but it's definitely out of the playbook of coach Cindy Ball Malone, who was able to host for the first time at UCF last season. Maddie, you don't want Cindy McKinney coming to your house hosting regionals. She's hitting 556 with her 600 batting average. Yeah. Doesn't sound fun. (laughs) If I'm a pitcher, (laughs) if I'm on her team, then yes, absolutely. She is so good guys. Like she is seriously so good at softball. It is so Mm -hmm. impressive. I think at times my Twitter account is a city McKinney fan club. Cause I just find myself like retweeting her stats. 
her her bat to ball skills I just think are off the chain. I mean, well, I got to watch her at the Fayetteville Regional last year, and the way that she makes in at bat and mid pitch adjustments with her swing, I think just puts her on a whole new level. Well, coming up later, we may have a question about Sydney McKinney in the mailbag, so stay tuned for that. Danielle, did you want to hit on your mid major to watch? Um, no, I'm with you guys. If I had to pick between Wichita State or ULL, I'll take Wichita State. I don't want to mess around with ULL. I, I My history with Jerry Glasso in the World Series with Georgia, I know what he is like and how badly he wants to get that team to Oklahoma City. And he's obviously competed there with some legit talent in Georgia in the past. Um, I think if anything, what impresses me the most is just it's a team that's built on speed, too. I mean, 83 stolen bases on the year so. The fact that they can do all facets of the game pretty well and they have a good pitching staff, like ultimately that's realistically where our game is going, right? We like you look at OU with having three solid pitchers that can get it done. Like that's really the difference in how our game has continued to evolve. Um, and that'll kind of take us into our next lineup card for my point. I don't want to give it away. Guys, this I want to bring up fantastic. somebody else, not necessarily from a hosting standpoint, but I've been having my eye on Charlotte from Conference USA for a while. I felt like they made a lot of noise last season and they're doing it again now. They're, they're 24 and 14. They beat South Carolina, Georgia, ASU and Virginia Tech. So they've had some seriously solid ranked wins and they've been knocking on the door for a while. I think right now they're hanging in that 27 spot. Um, Jen, you showed them a lot of love last year on the Twitter. I just, I feel like this team is making a case for themselves. And I think that they're going to crack into the, the top 25 before we know it. So I love their head coach, Ashley Chastain. I think yeah. wherever she's been, she's seen success. She was the pitching coach at Ole Miss. I think that she knows how to develop pitchers. You mentioned their win against South Carolina. She trained under Bev Smith played there. So I loved when she was able to beat her coach. Um, but I, I'm hot on Charlotte too. I think that they're the program of the future. And if we don't see them make it this year, it's just a team to circle an asterisk as someone to follow undoubtedly. All right. A quick plug to Louisiana. If you have not seen them play, you guys mentioned it. They play tonight, which today is Wednesday. They'll face Texas A&M. Our lovely friend Amanda Scarborough will be on the call for that. And if it's no longer Wednesday, when you're listening to this podcast, you can watch it on replay on the ESPN app. Isn't that beautiful? All right. We're moving on to number five in our lineup card. Faramo in our hearts. What a pun. It's fantastic. Um, UCLA, back-to-back Pac-12 series sweeps. They swept Stanford. Then they swept Oregon State. Jordan Woolery had a th- had three home runs over the week, and she's one of a couple of freshmen who are just tearing it up for UCLA right now. Jen, when you look at the Bruins, how do you see them settling in, especially with all these new players they've added this season? Where are they at right now? Okay. I mean, you mentioned some of their freshman sluggers, Jordan Woolery, Megan Grant, the stat that I'm not going to use for shagging stats. So I hope I'm not pulling anyone's right now is that this is the first time in the history of UCLA that two freshmen have 39 RBIs ever. It's April. They've already done it. I know Courtney's throwing her hands up. I probably jacked her stat. Uh, But for me, I mean, when I look at the history of UCLA and who's played in freshman classes together, that is an incredible statistic. What stood out to me, Courtney, is the way that Kelly I is changing her lineup a little bit, having Megan Grant at the top half of that lineup. And I feel like this is something that UCLA of the past didn't really do. They kind of just stuck to their laurels and rode with their nine, 10, maybe 11 players, a pinch hitter off the bench, and that's it. 
They are so deep this year. And that's what's really standing out to me. And that's why, I, I mean, when I say that they can make some noise, I think everyone's expecting them to be really good through the postseason. But I, I think that I think that they could be a team that beats Oklahoma. And everyone's going to say, Jen's a UCLA bias girl. And did you see what Oklahoma did to UCLA at, at the Marionette? Yeah, I saw it all, guys. And I still think that come postseason, I'm not saying they're going to take two from them, but I think that they could be a team that definitely challenges OU. Megan Frame on her last five games has been almost unhittable. Five and oh, 25 scoreless innings, no runs. She's only given up singles, 13. And here's the one that stands out the most to me. In her last five starts, only five walks. That's a huge improvement for Megan Faramo in the years of the past. Um, Courtney, I know you threw your hands up at one point. So what do you want to add here about the Bruins? Well, now I have a lot to say. One, you did take my shagging stat, but I've listened to this podcast for many years, so I prepared four just in case. Um, No one is surprised by that on this call. Um, Also, what is it about UCLA specifically that makes you think they can challenge in Oklahoma? Like, what is it? Not just the changing lineup, but what about the group of these women that they have? I think there's so much history leading back to travel ball with these two programs. You think about the bat busters in Southern California, their travel ball teams and how they've competed against and with one another for so long. And there's just history there. There's just history between the programs, between the head coaches and between the players. And so it's always an intriguing matchup to me. I would even go back and ask. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Aaron. The coaching staffs, they've coached against each other for almost 30 years. They know it's a, it's a chess match at this point. You know what Patty Gasso is going to cue. You know what Coach I is going to cue. And so I, I think you're right, Jen, and this is the OU bias speaking too. A run rule that early in the season, like, yeah, it felt great in the moment, but can you do that again on the biggest stage? That's really what I want to see. And it's going to be hard for them to pull this, that same performance against UCLA twice. Um, as Aaron said earlier, quote, the Twitter is going to be blowing up, y'all. So watch out for that. Um, I did want to ask, Jen, what do you think about um, Charlize Palacios coming in, calling pitches, working with these pitchers? How much has that helped Megan Faramo and UCLA's success? You know, I think I think it's been great. But I, I also want to give credit to Alyssa Garcia, who we're seeing not catch as much as we did. But I mean, she called Megan Faramo's perfect game that she had at Mary Nutter. And so, yeah, Char has been awesome. And Courtney, great lead in because you know who they play this weekend. They play Arizona all-time rivalry, Jenny, go Bruins, in Tucson, which is going to be a little precursor to the first ever Pac-12 tournament that will happen in Tucson. So obviously the drama of Charlize and Janelle returning to Tucson is going to add, you know, a little bit more element to this already historic three-game series that's about to happen in Tucson. And you think, too, Arizona's going to be fired up Hold because on. they just got swept. Hold on. Bear down, Arizona. That's all I need to say. All right. Go Jenny? <laughs> Just saying, Arizona is going to be fired up, too. They want a little redemption. They got swept by Stanford last week, and that was the first sweep of Stanford by Arizona since 2009. Also a little more pack love. Washington, nine straight home wins. They had sweeps of Arizona and Cal. So um, there is our Pac-12 punch, if you will. I want to to just mention one more thing about Washington, because I thought what they did with the Seattle Children's Hospital designing their cleats, did you guys see that? I mean, awesome. I've been doing a lot with pediatric cancer at one of my 
very best friends lost her child to cancer at eight months old. And I mean, a lot of us on this podcast are moms and can you only imagine having to watch your child suffer through a disease like that? It's just, it's absolutely heart-wrenching. And Bailey Stenson, one of Danielle's teammates, her little niece is actually going to get treatment at Seattle Children's Hospital coming up. One of Danielle's teammates on the 2009 national championship team. So for those players to go into Seattle Children's Hospital and meet with these little patients who are suffering from cancer and getting treatment for cancer and having them design art on their cleats. Incredible job, Washington. I was so moved by that. I'm so glad you said that. I saw that too. And it was absolutely just a beautiful gesture to wear out there on the field. It was incredible. All right, we are moving on to the sixth spot. Mo Montana, Mo Problems for Opponents. Um, Alabama's Montana Fouts. Danielle, thank you for the courtesy laugh. I appreciate that. <laughs> no, no, no. You're actually real funny. It's not a courtesy laugh. <laughs> she just does that because she has to deal with me a lot. No, no. Um, Montana Fouts, fourth career no-hitter against South Carolina. She faced two over the minimum. Um, D'Lo with the Velo. What are you seeing from Montana Fouts? Well, I mean, she's still killing it. And sometimes the times change when you're a fifth year, like the data is out there, the the scouting and it's harder to pitch. But I, I do believe since Lance has come in, he's kind of helped her evolve a little bit in the sense where she is forced to throw more down in the zone. She's throwing the change up a lot, but I mean, just looking at her numbers, I mean, she's joined the thousand club for K's um, has had 10 games this season with 10 plus strikeouts, seven shutouts this season with six or more innings pitched. Um, she, She's their ace. They have three other pitchers on staff with ERAs pretty high above two. And that's the concern for me. Like when I think of Alabama, I think of Montana Fouts. And I don't know offensively if, if this is a team that can realistically have her back when they get to the postseason. I look at last um, regionals when uh, Stanford came to them. And I circled that thinking like Stanford's going to come out and they're going to beat them because we know the Montana folks pitches well, but you can't expect that young lady to go out there and throw shutouts every single game. You have to be able to have her back offensively and looking last season, like they won one game against Stanford, but the other two in that regional, they weren't even able to score. They were shut out two times. So Montana folks is great. You can never count her out. But it's the other aspect of, are you going to be able to step up in those big moments and have a pitcher like that's back and score runs? And right now, that's the question mark for me with Alabama. Um, It's kind of been that way this whole season. I know, Maddie, your sister's on the team, but it's still my concern. Um, And then I'm talking a little Donnie Goburn. I mean, first off, I'm kind of pissed that I didn't even know who Donnie Goburn was until this year, slinging it at 74, 75 miles an hour. That to me is unbelievable. And I know that we've seen it with Carlin Pickens and, but it's just rare to see anyone be able to throw it that hard. And you kind of look at her last two starts, SEC starts, she's had 26 strikeouts, Florida, she had 15 and she had 11 against Alabama. And like, she's the type of player that you almost wish you could bottle up and take her back in time and like help evolve her to where she wasn't five years and then you're finding more about her in her last year. You wish that over the course of her career from transferring that she was able to kind of be where she's at right now. So she's kind of one of those players I'm really looking forward to, you know, Courtney and I are calling the Texas A&M Saturday matchup and I'm excited to see those two teams go at it because to me, Texas A&M and South Carolina are a little bit similar in the sense where they have a pretty big pitching staff. So you're going to see some pitchers go at it, but 
I'll be a happy camper if we can have an Emily Kennedy at 72 going up against the Donnie Goburn at 74 and having that type of matchup. But I, I believe Goburn's at her best right now based on her last two starts. She's pretty much the ace of this staff, even though they have multiple pitchers, but leads them with 59 innings pitched. Um, but yeah, it comes down to, for me with Alabama, who's going to help Fouts out because you know she's consistent. And Donnie Goborn, can she continue to be that type of ace for them as the season goes on? I think with Goborn, too, what kind of flies under the radar because we know her velocity, but the way that she mixes speeds, too, I think is a big reason why she's able to get so many strikeouts because as a batter, when you've got somebody pumping that high velocity and then they're throwing in off speeds on a consistent basis, you kind of have to go up there and choose which one you want to hit. And if you get to two strikes, then you're just battling. You're just trying to foul stuff off until you get a mistake. But I've been really impressed with the way that she's been able to pitch. I wanted to touch on Georgia, too, taking two from our Arkansas this past weekend. If you guys have not seen Jada Kearney hit yet this year, you need to because she could put on a masterclass on how to get power hitting the ball's opposite field. The way she lets the ball travel, the way her barrel stays back, the extension, her leg drive, everything, it is picture perfect. And they were down to their very last strike against Shanice Dells in the circle, and she comes through with the go-ahead home run. It, uh, absolutely clutch. The next day, you know, we, we talk about pitching stabs. Shelby Walters for them has been a huge ad transferring over from Duke to Georgia this year to really work with Madison Kerpix in the circle, I think has been a difference maker for that entire team. Uh, and just wanted to touch on quick uh, Florida taking two from Auburn this past weekend. Maddie Penta, another one of the hard throwers in the SEC too. I thought she had a really nice bounce back win on uh, or in game three. But Reagan Walsh is a hitter that we haven't talked a lot about in the Florida offense. And I think she's swinging a really hot bat right now. Coach Tim Walton said she could be one of those high power, high average kids. And I think we're seeing that for the Florida Gators this year. Interesting note too. I was, I was researching Donnie Goborn. Just, I mean, I didn't realize she was a shortstop in high school. She pitched three innings her senior year. And so she didn't start focusing on pitching until she got to junior college. So it's working out. Okay. She's doing well. Uh, we're going to move on to number seven, the clobbering cats. This was a Jenny Dalton Hill kind of game. Northwestern, a program record 24 runs in Saturday's win against Penn State. They had an inning where they scored 11 runs. They had an inning where they scored 10 runs. Jenny would have loved it. What'd you think, Jenny Dalton Hill? I am the big cat with the bat. Well, yeah. maybe I, I, I would like to be the skinny cat with the big bat, but it doesn't really work that way. But when it comes to the long ball, I love this Northwestern team. They have set records this year. They hit six home runs against Illinois. They scored 24 runs against Penn State, both of those school records. Um, they also have shown that they can come through in the pinch when they have their back against the wall. They have walk-off wins against Auburn this year and also Minnesota. So both of those big wins to kind of prove who they are against um, one of those being an SEC squad. It's a team that never gives up. And when it comes to these two teams, while we love to talk about hitting, and I do especially, I have to talk about pitching in this one because Danielle Williams and that devastating changeup that she throws, she, to me, the lefty, is so crafty. After throwing 251 innings last season, she's finally getting some help in the circle this year. The, the DePaul transfer, Cammie Henry, and also the junior Lauren Boyd are picking up 
quality innings for them. And in an era where pitching staffs combine, these three have totaled 14 complete games individually in 199 innings pitched. So they're a three-headed pitching staff. And I really like the way this Northwestern team that is ranked 20th in the country right now has stepped up and shown that they want to win the Big Ten. They are the only team in the Big Ten that is ranked at the moment, which might be a surprise knowing that Michigan and Nebraska have put up big things in the past. But so far, Northwestern, really the only squad right now putting up the big numbers. Um, Aaron, what else did you see this week? Yeah, I think that that Arizona is a team that I continue to expect big things out of. I mean, last season when I got to call their super regional with Mississippi State, that was one of those like life changing moments that I saw for for that team and that coaching staff. Um, Caitlin is a joy to be around. Um, I think she's an incredible human and a mother and watching that moment for her, I think is really going to be a huge trajectory for her career. So even though they're at the, I think at the bottom, I don't know exactly what they are in the RPI right now. I think they're sitting maybe 25. Um, I, I, I continue to expect them to do big things. I think that they caught momentum last season at the right time. They're still building off of it. When I got to see her earlier this year at Clearwater, she just mentioned about identity that this team is young and they're trying to piece things together um, and, you know, Jennifer, you're, Jen, you mentioned there's this part of the season right now, I think is when you have to turn the corner and put the pieces together and you either have it and you're figuring it out and you're starting to catch momentum at the right time, or you don't, and, and you're trying to claw your way into those, into those wins late in the season. So I, I still expect big things out of Arizona. I do. I know that they have it in there and then they're well coached. Yeah, most definitely. I also look at um, Indiana in the Big Ten. They've received votes. They haven't entered into this the rankings, but going into their series against Minnesota, they were riding a 22-game win streak. They did lose two games in that series. They outhit Minnesota 25 to 22. Almost half of their hits, though, were for extra bases. And I love that. So five home runs, five doubles, and a triple in that series. And the cool thing about Indiana is a group of starters that is very young. They've got six sophomores, uh, six players, combined sophomores and freshmen who are starters. There are no senior starters in that lineup. So for me, look going forward, this is a big push for Indiana, knowing that they've got some big talent coming forward without the worry of graduation, but it's getting difficult for them to out hit their defense. They've got to really clean it up defensively, get rid of those errors. They've got 49 on the season, definitely a a struggle for them. But when you're young, you do have those miscues. A big key for them is Taryn Kern, a freshman. We've talked a lot about freshmen in this podcast, and she's one that gets my vote. She leads the country with 17 home runs. So after having the name Jocelyn Allo for so many years as the leader in home runs, we're right now looking at a freshman who's leading the country in the long ball, and she broke the Indiana single season record. Uh, Minnesota put pressure on all weekend walk-off win on a Jess Oakland sack fly. She was three for three on the day with four RBI and two home run. And then uh, in game three against them, she was able to come away with really big, or they had a three headed pitching staff that was able to just give up um, 10 hits. They had some long innings. 
but their defense stepped up. And to me, that's the thing that makes a difference. Defense this time of year, you've got to show up or you're not going to win. My question mark, though, for this group is where does the Big Ten look to sit in postseason play? Northwestern most likely going to walk away with the ace with the Big Ten championship. So they'll get the AQ into the postseason. But will Michigan, Minnesota, Indiana, Wisconsin have an RPI high enough to be able to push them into representation in the postseason? Michigan right now with an RPI of 26 has a record of 19 and 15. And so the only way you make it into the postseason is to be above 500. And with Michigan still having Northwestern, Indiana, and Minnesota to play, I'm worried for the Wolverines making it to the postseason because they've got to hit 500 to be able to even make it into the postseason. Jenny, I also think Big Ten right now is waiting on that that replay call. As a conference, they've left it up to the individual schools. I know that that was a big deal between the Maryland and Rutgers two-game doubleheader, and it, it came down to a, a could have been a game ending double play. And so I know that there's a big push right now, especially seeing how well it's performed in the SEC and in the Big 12 and the other power fives. Um, Coach Montgomery threw his hands up in a big way with a postgame interview of the fact that they could have taken game one from Rutgers and they didn't because of a missed call at first pace on a double play. So, again, we get back to that replay conversation of when are we going to see this be equitable across the entire landscape? All right, ladies, we're moving on to my favorite segment. It's time for a Shaggin' Stats. Now, as we mentioned, Jen Schro has already taken one of mine. We'll see if the next three remain standing after everyone has gone. But Danielle, would you like to start us off? I will. I'm just, I'm going to keep mine short and sweet. I'm just going to talk a little uh, Valerie Cagle. So just where she ranks, she ranks top five nationally in ERA, shutouts, victories, hits, home runs, slugging percentage, and total bases and is seventh overall in batting average. So to me, we're witnessing one of the greatest two-way players, I think, to do it in a really, really long time. So that's mine. I'll hop in next. Courtney, I I 100% thought you were going to go first to ensure that no one else stole yours. I I, I would have bet money on it. I like a challenge. I love it. Um, I'm stealing mine from Brady Vernon from D1 Softball. He tweeted it, and I loved it. Uh, OSU's Rachel Becker, stud, 15-game hit streak. In that time, in those 15 games, her batting average has decreased. It started at 524, and she's down to 500. So to me, that's a shagging stat. That's a weird one. Maddie, what do you got? Well, we'd all hate to have a 500 batting average. I know. It's terrible. It's terrible. Um, I'm actually going to give a lot of credit to, or all the credit to Kayla Bro for my shagging stat because she showed me uh, this home run to fly or a home run to fly ball ratio. And I was really impressed with Arizona State's Jordan Van Hook is at a 50% home run to fly ball ratio. So that tells me that 50% of the time that she hits a fly ball in a game, that thing's going out of the yard. That's interesting. She shared that with you since you're not her favorite shipman. Oh, yeah. We're bringing back the throwback throwdown. <laughs> never All forget. Hashtag, hashtag never forget. Erin, um, <laughs> you got a shag and stat for us? I do. Mine's a pitching check-in. I was looking at innings pitched right now, and there's four arms uh, in the top 25 right now that have over 124 innings thrown, and we're barely over halfway. One of those being Lemley with 149 innings. She's pitched 60% in, of their season. Fouts with 139. Penta. Um, with 132 innings and Kegel with 124. And I know Danielle's the only pitcher on this call, but I think about where we are in the season. 
now is when you really have to rely as a pitcher on that offseason grind and how hard you work to prepare that foundation um, with that many innings. I mean, that's some labor at this point in the season. So that's that's what I'm looking at is can these arms truly finish out through a postseason run? Well, and Aaron, I'm going to go pitching too. I don't know what it is because we don't have pitchers on this podcast. I mean, other than Danielle, I guess I felt like we needed to have some representation. So my number for shag and stats is five. Murray State Racers are 25 and 14 right now. They swept Valparaiso um, last weekend in Missouri Valley Conference play. Hannah James, the pitcher for Murray State, threw her fifth perfect game of her career. So really excited to watch this young lady play. I was able to coach her when she was like 14 years old. She was good back then, but so fun to watch her um, step up. She's got 113 innings pitched on the year, Aaron, to your point. If the racers want to make a push, they're going to have to watch the arm of Hannah James. Guys, my three other ones survived. How exciting is that? Okay, but I'm going to pick one. I'm going Louisville. Um, Corby Otis, ACC Clo Player of the Week. She went nine for 10 in the series against Notre Dame. That's 900. Not hard math for me to do. Thank goodness. Uh, she had a double, a triple, a home run, four runs scored, three RBI. She was a home run short of the cycle on Saturday, and she has a 30-game reach base streak. She tied the Louisville record going four for four on Friday. Boom. And that was Shag and Stats. I've been waiting my whole life to do that. Um, thank you. Moving over to the mailbag. I'm going to throw these out as we're winding up our podcast. Mailbag's super fun. You can tweet at us at 7innings podcast or hit us up on Instagram, wherever you want. Um, this one is from, it says from Mike Pelkey. I'm sure who that is, but I know a Pelkey who works on our crew. Um, didn't know he had a first name. I'm going to go with Jen. If you had a TV wand, um, basically if you were Mega Ronowitz, which matchup would you want to see pre-postseason that would be non-conference? Okay, I have a couple, but I about 30 seconds ago, I picked one. And it's going to be Oregon-Texas rematch. I just got to go with the drama. I also, I think, I think Oregon is a team we've talked about a lot on this podcast. We do not want to face them in the postseason. They find a way to fight. We all know Texas is the same way. Texas is scrappy. Texas is good. There's obviously some drama there with the program. So I go Texas-Oregon. Give me all the drama. Anybody want to throw one out? I'm going, I want to see OSU Clemson, very well-coached teams with very different styles. They have a lot of um, pretty symmetrical offensive numbers. The biggest thing I see is the speed of Clemson. They have 80 stolen bases on the air compared to 40 for Oklahoma State. But I, I want to see a Kegel and Maxwell matchup. I think that that would be a really exciting game. So that that's that's my pick. I'm going to stick on the Oklahoma State train, but I want to see Oklahoma State and Georgia face off. I want to see the pitching for Oklahoma State going up against the bats for Georgia. Fantastic. Okay, our next question from 50 Days to the Women's College World Series at Softball Over 98. Sydney McKinney is so close to breaking the all-time hits record. What are the chances you think she'll break it? Now, she is at 354 right now. That's 14th most all time. She needs 51 hits to tie. Danielle, what do you think? Uh, it's not looking good. <laughs> There's 12 regular season games left, um, by the way, for Wichita State. I and actually talked to Allison McCutcheon, who holds the all-time record at 405 hits. And I played with her at the University of Arizona 
I think one of the reasons I hold the RBI record is because I hit behind Allie. And so when it comes to this record, she said it was actually between her and Laura Berg at the time, trying to see who could hit 400 first. And remember, this is before internet. I know that ages us. But when it comes to that dynamic of who was going to be able to out hit that 400 mark, there was some banter in the dugout between the two, Laura Berg and Allison McCutcheon. And uh, Allie was able to get it hitting 405 in her career. Okay, here's our last question, ladies, from Jennifer. Does the sweep of Clemson by Florida State hurt Valerie Cagle's chances at player of the year? Who wants to take it? I feel like Jen's touched on this last week a little bit about their postseason run. So this is my opinion and my opinion only. Valerie Cagle is doing unreal things and she is the front runner for player of the year. But in my opinion, again, my opinion only, if your team doesn't make a deep postseason run, I think the player of the year should be a player that gets their team to at least a super regional. Anyone oppose that thought? No, I totally agree with you. And I actually like the way that she responded after that, those losses against Florida state, she came out against South Carolina with a really impressive run. She was the closer that threw an inning and two thirds in their matchup this week and uh, hit a three run bomb. That was the go ahead runs for them. So she's still doing Valerie Cagle things unreal. She did allow a home run in the last inning, but she had already out hit their potential and gave them the win. When I think about uh, from this was a long time ago, but 2010 when Oklahoma came to us for the Supers and that was the year that Flores hit the back to back to back homers off me in game one. I can't say that that's what I was thinking about in that moment. Oh my God, I'm not going to win national player of the year. That was totally not it. But if we got stubbed on one game or a bad performance or a weekend where maybe we didn't perform well, then I mean, that would suck. So I'm with you guys and like seeing, it doesn't matter to me what happened in the past. I think moving forward for Clemson and Valerie Cagle right now, like the opportunity is there. That was such a big weekend, in my opinion, for them to fully feel what it was like to compete at a very high level. If you want to win and be successful, you got to understand that you got to play the game at a different level and they were not prepared. But it doesn't mean that she can't put herself in a position to learn from those moments of maybe being uncomfortable and just continuing to kill it and be someone that could, you know, be a top candidate to win it. I, I think if she can get him to a super, she, she could stand a good chance for sure. Softballers, we did it. Seven Innings Podcast in the books. Thanks so much for joining us. It was super fun. Thanks for putting up with me. Um, it was great to see everybody. I know you can't see us at home because this is a podcast. Um, but we'll be back next week. So catch all your softball. Get that ESPN app out. We've got a ton of games for you this weekend. And we'll chat next week. Enjoy the softball.